This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In June 2020, there was a clash between India and China at a disputed border site in which 20 Indian soldiers were killed. A wave of anti-Chinese sentiment swelled across India, with Chinese-made televisions thrown from balconies, restaurants boycotted, and Chinese goods burnt. With the COVID-19 pandemic devastating India, the anti-Chinese sentiment has only worsened. While bilateral trade between the two countries is now recovering, there is a conscious effort of decoupling. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has banned hundreds of Chinese apps, slowed approval for Chinese investment, and called for self-reliance. With Indian public discourse on China worsening, have the two countries walked away from shaping the Asian century together? Here to discuss these issues is Snigda Poonam, an independent journalist based in India and author of Dreamers, How Young Indians Are Changing the World. If I could take you back to the aftermath of the border clash between India and China in June 2020, what was your experience of the reaction to these events uh, in the street of India? It was a really big moment for us. So I think the clashes took place on 15th June, 20 Indian soldiers lost their lives. The reactions were extreme and intense. China and India have had border disputes for decades. Lives have been lost since 1962 when, when the two countries went to war. So suddenly 20 soldiers dying in what was constantly told to us was a very violent conflict. People were in rage. But first there was this huge wave of national grief, ceremonies and remembrances for the martyrs. And then quite quickly, that mood changed to pent up rage. Just what started was first these street protests across India, probably at first led by our semi-political groups. And then a couple of days, we were seeing neighborhood-wise protests where you know people were just coming together and walking through the night with placards and, and, and banners. The next came the burning of Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese president's effigies. So at various places in India, I forget just how many reports I collected at that time, angry protesters would build a straw effigy of Xi Jinping and then either burn it at the city center or their local market, or actually sometimes do an elaborate funeral ritual in which they would place the effigy on like a bamboo frame that we use for Hindu cremations and then carry that in a procession and then lead it to a crematorium kind of thing where it would be burnt. Sometimes those effigies were just like tied to bamboo poles and people would stone it. It became really violent. The one demonstration really showed how much anger there was in India. There's a procession in which a man dresses as Xi Jinping with makeup and clothes and expressions and then he leads the procession and then Someone in the procession is, is carrying like a, a gallows for him to be hanged. And then at one point, the crowd stops and the man steps into the gallows and the rope comes down and then he puts his neck and then 
the whole thing it tilts his neck he dies and there's a huge cheer behind him and i really thought to myself that i've never seen anything like this before and then this was not it and then started this throwing of chinese goods from indian households so from like windows across india major indian cities people started to throw chinese goods out of their windows so from mobile phones to like the whole television sets from like buckets to remote controls i i hope you get the picture of like just how big that moment was in the anti chinese sentiment that took, took off from there the public reaction to this in the wake of the conflict that happened have they been sustained events or was it something that happened in the immediate aftermath what has that been like in the years since there was never for example a, a commemoration a year afterwards by modi if i'm correct so there was no kind of public acknowledgement of of the events that happened the general indian public's reaction to china and indian policy makers reaction to china are very polarized as some of the experts told me while i was reporting the piece that indians had distrustful attitude towards china for the longest time i think that since the war in the 1962 which was something that the indians see as betrayal by china the sense of betrayal sort of carries on from there but you also must realize that a long time has passed since then you know generations have been born and grown up so that distrust is there somewhere in the back of the indian minds but it doesn't really manifest in our daily conversations or or the way that we talk about the world or our neighbors having said that i mean the indian policy makers remain quite tight-lipped about china because of the ways in which india and china are economically linked i won't go into that in detail but what remains certain is that no prime minister in india's recent political past has come up and made a grand statement about china including narendra modi who even after the galwan valley dispute clashes probably made one speech right after and then hasn't spoken about it since then uh, not even at the first anniversary there was nothing from him there was nothing from the government officially so this anger against china or the anti chinese sentiment comes more from what the experts say is the non political indian establishment so you will have leaders in the military you will have leaders in indian business you will have leaders on diplomatic fronts they are very open about the way that india sees china and that is very different to what the prime minister might or might not say in the latest munich security report 78% of indian respondents named chinese aggression as the main risk they faced and this was followed by the coronavirus pandemic so i i just want to bring that number up 78% when you have a number that high of indian respondents naming chinese aggression as a main risk what does that do to the actions of a government who at one hand don't want to anger their main trading partner too much but at the same time they want to keep their public popularity i mean this must affect the decisions that they make the attitudes that they have and i i guess in some ways it's going to also be affected by how close they are to a major election of some sort uh, how much do they want to play to these kind of sentiments um yeah thank you for bringing that up this is a very tricky situation for the indian government yeah you're right that 78% of indians saw china as as their biggest major threat there's always been distrust so in 2019 when the pew research center 
carried out a nationwide survey, I think only 23% of Indians had a favorable view of China. You know, every year you will have a survey that kind of shows Indians as being wary of China, not in this way that they've been since the border clashes, but, but India made its biggest economic move against China two months before the border clashes. The Indian government restricted foreign investments for neighboring countries with which it has land border. And everyone could tell that this was aimed at China because for years, and especially since Narendra Modi came to power, the government has been facing this immense domestic demand to make India come up in manufacturing, you know, in investments, in domestic production. One of the factors that makes it especially remarkable is that the Narendra Modi's party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, is very attached to a political nationalist ideology that springs from a cultural organization, the Rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh, you know, which is like the font of Hindu nationalist vision for India. And one of its main building blocks is this vision that India will be self-sufficient or Atmanidwar, as Narendra Modi keeps calling it. But it hasn't happened so far. It hasn't happened in Modi's seven years now. And anyone who knows anything about India's like economic prospects will say that it's probably not going to happen in, in the near future. So Narendra Modi has to walk this very shaky line, promising people that India can be self-sufficient and independent of China's economic health and also keep them happy. So is it enough to address public concerns then what Narendra Modi has done at a time when the coronavirus pandemic is doing so much damage globally uh, that people are more worried about their neighbours to the north. I'm just wondering where that kind of balance is and if Narendra Modi's kind of striking the right balance with the actions that he's taken, in your view. There isn't really a balance yet since the border con- conflict. I mean, China emerged as India's leading trade partner, leaving behind the USA, which used to have the number one position. In terms of pure numbers, that hasn't happened. I see amongst young voters, I see a lot of anger against Narendra Modi, against his party for having failed to do that. There's a rising concern amongst them, especially after the border clashes, that India show China's place. And to be honest, I don't think that it just comes from a territorial anger. I think it comes from years and years of hoping that India will finally take its place in the world and that it hasn't. Indians either love or hate Pakistan, which probably know, but they don't envy Pakistan in any way. As far as an average Indian perception of China goes, envy comes up very high. Even though we can't really be on the Chinese internet or have very few real life interactions with the Chinese people, we are bombarded with images of their gleaming cities, their super fast railway lines, their massive ports. And that causes anxiety amongst millions of people who are young, who still have their lives to build in a country that doesn't seem to be anywhere close to that. So if we could take it now to something in particular that you've been focusing a lot in your reporting, which is uh, the Indian government banning hundreds of Chinese apps. While there was a concern that the use of the data that these apps were capturing, what has the ban amounted to for the youth in India uh, who have been tied to China through a network of consumer goods and phone apps? I think that that was probably 
one of the biggest impacts of the border conflict and it still remains a very very tense issue for young indians i have been following youth culture in india for about 10 years and i can easily and not facetiously divide that time between pre and post tiktok and by tiktok i mean not just that app which was amazingly transformative for youth culture in india dozens and dozens of apps and services and gadgets that that came to india from china and became integral to you know how an 18 year old 19 year old lives their lives we're talking about people who did could not afford a mobile phone that cost 10000 rupees but then suddenly you had mobile phones that cost 5000 rupees you know 5 years ago even 7 or 8 years ago mobile phones not an expensive commodity but not something that someone in a village could just like get up and go and buy and that changed about 5 years ago and then suddenly everyone had access to these cheap mobile phones they had access to these apps and services on their mobile phones that made going digital accessible to them you know these chinese apps were very big on video which meant that the chinese social media apps didn't need you to write in hindi or write in english and be literate or be literate in this language or that language you could just go on video and talk in your local dialects that made millions of people across india embrace the internet embrace uh, social media find a voice online even the aesthetics of, of the chinese apps weren't alienating so there's been like a huge instagram versus like tiktok debate in india because the kind of influencers that these chinese apps were creating seemed very rooted very local very comfortable with who they were the instagram idea of you know someone who is rich is also popular or of you can afford a, a holiday or a fancy meal or a nice house obviously you will have more followers so it was quite the opposite for tiktok but more importantly there were thousands of people who suddenly found a means of income through these apps whether they were live streaming apps or video sharing apps or gaming apps income making possible whether people were making 100 rupees a day or whether they were getting sponsors like coca-cola and pepsi people were suddenly going to villages and finding the whole villages youth engaged in making income from these apps and so there was income and recognition and identity and all of these were linked to these apps so for indian government to suddenly wake up and ban those apps was created again like with the june clash is a huge wave of just it wasn't grief but first it was just disbelief <laughs> i was speaking to them at that time and they would just wouldn't accept that these apps were banned and then that their accounts were locked and that they won't come back there was so much that was lost so there is a lot of time has passed since then but i think that loss is still uh, very prominent has the marketplace for apps recovered then in that time because as you say a lot of time moved on is there a new indian based app that's filled the void or has there been no real alternative for these people to go to and be creative just more than a year has passed since then and the idea was that the government bans these apps and then the indian digital economy will produce its own self-reliant alternatives and i had also been talking to people in the indian tech economy sector for some time long before the ban there had been a lot of pressure from them on the indian government to ban these apps the demand for tiktok ban or the ban of chinese apps had been there for as long as these apps have been around so the apps were banned and the prime minister made a, a speech to indians saying that 
now we will have indian apps for your entertainment and for your creative aspiration etc and then he called on young leaders in the indian like technology sector to come up with their options or their alternatives and then we had dozens of these like copycat apps for everything from photo sharing to video editing to live streaming except that none of those apps really stood out or have stuck around you know so the people that were the tiktok stars of the time kind of like really got lost they're talking to them it seemed like they couldn't decide which app they should go to because like the audience got divided some of them like completely went off the scene and even though the apps copied say a tiktok or a or a bigo live was a really big live streaming app the experience just wasn't the same and then instagram started this real thing which was aimed at capturing that market but the experience of instagram in india has been very different in that it really hasn't been able to capture that market the majority of social media users in india still live in the villages they are non english speaking they do not have picture perfect houses and and accents and clothes so you know when instagram tried to create an alternative it paid creators to come on board that it thought were aligned with that aesthetic so it the effect has been quite alienating mm okay my last question before i throw it open to the audience for a question or two is kind of asking you to unfortunately look in your crystal ball and be a bit predictive of the future uh, while it doesn't look like the negative sentiment towards china will change in the immediate future they are a dominant trade partner and in the 2021 fiscal year it was india's leading trade partner as you said earlier so what do you think will win out economics or enmity i've spoken to a lot of people who know better than me and uh, they don't seem to think that india can be independent of china's inputs the way that china has entered the indian economy is is very deep and varied there are investments in everything like pharmaceutical industry and i think that through the coronavirus india imported critical medical supplies from china so that gives you a picture of just how difficult it would be if there was another wave or another epidemic of this kind of course there is the digital slash technology sector which is huge in india and in which you know china has almost built an economy within india which i have been following for a different project in which like entire suburbs are now sort of redesigned for the chinese companies to come and do their business those companies employ young indians i've just been like looking at the business of mandarin education in india and just becoming a chinese translator was something that young indians increasingly sought to do over the last 10 years and now many of them don't have a job anymore but they hope those companies will come back you have chinese supermarkets you know chinese accounting firms you have so much infrastructure has been set up for china to do business in india so i don't think that that's going to just go away even before the coronavirus i think china had 8 billion us dollars invested in india so i don't think that, that all of that's gone okay we'll go to the audience for a question or two now the first question that i'll take is from shailendra nath uh, shailendra you can ask your question to snigda Uh, yeah hi can you hear i can hear you sindha i am also from delhi i think some of the statements that you're making and let's say even if if we talk about the band apps now many of these applications 
were not only banned in India but uh, across many other countries, and this is primarily by virtue of governments getting concerned on the misuse of data collected by the Chinese uh, government uh, and agencies through the use of such apps. This kind of response has been there not only from India but uh, around the globe. And uh, while I appreciate that the subject of this podcast is India and China, but uh, the responses uh, and some of the reactions uh, that seem to have been kind of given, I feel it's a micro view, not a macro view. What do you say on that? Thank you, Shalindra. I have reported and studied extensively online data privacy and geopolitics. So you can probably look me up and find some of those uh, analysis. That TikTok collected Indians' data and quite rampantly, you know, all you had to do was just give them your phone number and the kind of data that it was collecting through your mobile phone. Well, yes, that that is a concern. It's something that I feel concerned about. And a lot of Chinese apps did that, but so do a lot of Indian apps and a lot of apps from Korea. Sorry to say, it didn't look to me like the actual reason that the Indian government banned the 59 Chinese apps in last September. There had been demands, you're very right, there had been demands to ban TikTok on data privacy concerns for a long time before that. In fact, the first time it was the demand had come up in uh, Tamil Nadu Assembly and uh, they had even banned TikTok there for a week or something. Yes, the US has similar concerns about TikTok's data privacy and the suspicion is that the Chinese technology companies hand over their data to the Chinese government. We have zero proof of that so far. So whether or not they do is something that we still have to find out. And with China's level of transparency about how its digital economy operates, we probably won't find out for some time. You know, when you try to ban TikTok or you try to ban a live streaming app, you're also giving China a message. Uh, and I think that, is, that has been very true of both U.S. and India's response to China's tech takeover. We'll take uh, one more question, uh, one that I've got here from Kate Reed-Smith. Can you hear me now? There we go. We got you. Yes. Yes, we can hear you. Great. So far, guys, I just have a very interesting uh, thought. And my question is, have you seen rising anti-Chinese sentiment concurring alongside rising anti-Pakistani sentiment, especially noting how much Chinese military and and I know there's been a lot of infrastructure development along the Karachi coast. So is there a concomitant rise between anti-Chinese and anti-Pakistan sentiment along those lines outside of, you know, domestic agendas? Uh, yes, thanks. That's a great question. It was something that I wanted to touch on earlier, but it just kept slipping my mind. Uh, that is a huge concern. The formation of a new, a new kind of nationalism in the minds of the Indian youth. New because, as I said, I mean, China has always been in the back of Indian minds as something to be wary of. But growing up, I had a definite view of Pakistan formed by everywhere from society to politics to television channels, you can imagine. The fact that China became over the years a key economic and military partner of Pakistan has been quite crucial to the way that we see China, like Indians see China today. So like a lot of the hatred or anti-Chinese sentiment that I was seeing blow up on the Indian internet was very linked to giving proofs, whether real or fake, of how China and Pakistan were kind of coming together and what that meant for India's interests. All right, we might uh, leave it there if that's okay. Thank you very much for your time today, Snigda. 
Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. And thank you all for coming. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your local friendly neighborhood podcasting service. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we are at Latrobe Asia. Snigda is at Snigda Poonam. I'm Matt Smith, and thank you for listening. <laughs>